hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Mateos de Campos, who is an assistant professor of New Testament at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, dean of the Hamilton campus, director of formation and leadership development. So stay tuned. Hello and welcome to the Guys Like Us podcast. This is your host, Tyler Brondike. And I'm excited for this episode today. I'm talk, talking with Dr. DeCampos, who's an assistant professor of New Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's the dean of the Hamilton campus and director of formation and leadership development. Well, like many of the guests on the show, as you know, they are in, involved in a lot of different areas of, um, of expertise and come with a lot of experience as well. So I'm excited for today. He uh, is really involved in the Gospel of Mark, and so we hear about the Gospel of Mark and some surprising, perhaps, components of Mark that impact our view of discipleship and how we're following Jesus. He shares more about his experience in different learning environments in Brazil, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, um, and other places as well, and really talks about the importance of, of creating strong discipleship and learning atmospheres uh, in theological education, like Gordon-Conwell, but also as it applies to other schools and institutions and even our own household and beyond. So I'm excited for today's conversation. And um, as always, I'm going to remind you, if you want to stay plugged in to all the latest podcast episodes, um, please consider signing up for our newsletter at theguyslikeus.com. And you can scroll down to the bottom and you'll see a place to enter in your information so that you can stay up to date, up to date with all the latest. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. DeCampos. Thank you, Tyler. It's a pleasure to be here um, and, and to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we just would love to start out and just uh, to orient our audience as always and We've had I've had a lot of guests on who have been you know authors, pastors, entrepreneurs, and I've had some folks who have been perhaps more involved in the academic uh, circles. And just recently, I actually um, had the the president of Gordon Con- College uh, on, and so now kind of just down the road, people often confuse kind of Gordon Conwell and Gordon Gordon College, as I'm sure you know. Um, but just kind of want to know how you got into teaching and what kind of was uh, so maybe perhaps encouraging or inspiring for you to enter into this field. Yeah, I, um, I actually never never uh, planned to become a, a professor. Uh, certainly not in a in a in a context like this, an academic context like this. Uh, I actually began my journey in theology as a pastor. Went to seminary in Brazil and pastored. Mm-hmm. for about 10 years in um, a city called Americana in the um, about an hour and a half from Sao Paulo. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess what happened was that my ministry started to um, uh, direct itself more to teaching and preaching. And at that point, I felt that I, um, I was under-resourced in Brazil and ended up um, uh, going to Regent College in Vancouver, Canada, following a a, a professor of Regent that that had um, given a series of lectures that was um, very enlightening for me um, as a pastor. So um, his name is Ricky Watts, and so I followed Rick um, all the way to Vancouver to mm-hmm. take as many classes as I could from from him. Uh, and then this um, really a, a, a desire to go deeper and deeper into Scripture. Mm-hmm. And especially um, very attracted to the Gospel of Mark, led me later to um, uh, PhD studies in mm-hmm. in the UK. Um, and at that point, um, mm-hmm. I was um, not very clear about whether to go back to ministry or to pursue um, academia. But the opportunity came to be at Gordon Conwell, which mm-hmm. kind of br- brings together both my pastoral uh, experience and my academic experience mm-hmm. in a way that I can serve the church in a meaningful way, at least from my perspective. So that's how I, I ended up. It was, I tell my students, it was never planned this, this way, mm-hmm. but I'm, th- mm-hmm. I'm certainly thankful that, that it, it did. Mm-hmm. 
No, fantastic. And well, just kind of where you spoke on a little bit where I was getting is you've been in some different environments, obviously, you know, in, in Brazil and then the United States and Canada and then UK, which are, you know, I guess not too, too far away from each other, but in some sense there can be, can feel vastly different. And you mentioned some of the reasons why you left Brazil to go elsewhere and um, just would love to hear, I think one of the cool, so I think there's two components, right? Is the academic kind of learning environment that I, you can see at those different places, but also kind of the Christian community. And I, I've at least found, I've taken a few classes at Gordon Conwell myself of, they really try and think about both of those considerations, at least the academic and how we're being trained, but also how we're being formed and shaped. And so perhaps we can just kind of look at those two strands at kind of these different different locations you've been in and just kind of the overall environment of these spaces too. Just would love to hear a little bit more about the differences and kind of what was unique. Yeah. Um, gosh, where to begin? It's uh, <laughs> these, these 13 years we've been away from Brazil. Um, we feel as a family, my wife and I, I'm, I'm married to my wife, Renata, mm-hmm. Um, and that we have two kids, Matt and Zoe. Matt, when we moved to Canada, he was two and a half, mm-hmm. and Zoe was born in Canada. So our families kind of uh, 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 experienced this this uh, dislocation from one place to the other while, while we're st- still being having our identities formed as right. a family. So it was very interesting. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, I think, we experienced Christianity in different ways uh, in these mm-hmm. spaces. Uh, obviously, the, Brazil is a place. I grew up in, and a lot mm-hmm. of my identity is tied to uh, that space and that culture. It's interesting that only when you go out of your country you realize how much, uh, how how rooted you are in your mm. own, own culture, and how much uh, depth there is to the cultural environment in which you're formed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I see myself very much as a Brazilian, um, and. In living in the, in the diaspora, as you were, uh, experiencing and bringing my own perspectives into it. Mm-hmm. What is unique about a Brazilian perspective? Uh, it's it's hard to to pin down. I think we're um, we're people that values community a lot. So uh, a very mm-hmm. very corporate sort of understanding. Um, and um, I I grew up in in a, a church that valued both the uh, you know strong theological framework, but also very charismatic in its expression of, of the faith. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that kind of integration is something that I, I really cherish. Um, and just the spontaneity, I think, of the Brazilian that uh, uh, marks the, the, the flavor of Christianity mm-hmm. that we have there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly, you know, as I mentioned, I, I la- part of the reason I, I went to uh, Canada was uh, that I felt under-resourced, and part of it is because theological education, uh, especially when it comes to academic robustness, is, is in its early stages in Brazil. Um, you don't have a, a lot of um, pure academics in Brazil. It's mostly um, people involved in ministry, also helping out with um, seminary education, which has a lot of of uh, benefits. Um, my, the first part of my hmm. training was actually grounded in the church and taking seminary classes at night, which kind of formed my theology from the, the ground up. Uh, but at the same time, it lacks sometimes lacks depth, and that's mm-hmm. what I gained from my experience in other places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more to be said sure, about sure. Uh, these differences, but that's that's one that jumps out. No, I've noticed that, and I think um, and some people have been identifying some of the changes in North America, or at least in the United States, to theological education and training, and perhaps the increase of more bivocational pastors. And so this has been, sounds like an experience, or at least a lot of uh, immigrant churches in New England operate out of that kind of mindset of, I have my full-time job and the work I'm doing for the church or for the ministry is on top of that. Um, But it sounds like, I guess that there's more of that, I guess, integration of those two back in Brazil and some from some other, whereas here there's perhaps more of a, you're either kind of, you do this or you do that. Yeah, sort of. I think there's still uh, a lot of 
I think full-time ministry is still the prevalent model in Brazil. Um, okay. You you do have, uh, you know, tent makers and whatnot, but uh, I, I would say that the, it's still very common for people to go to seminary. However, uh, seminary is normally not full-time as uh, uh, okay as it is here. Uh, it's it's something that you do alongside ministry. So mm-hmm. I think the integration happens at, at, at that level in mm-hmm. Brazil that mm-hmm. you are not you, you are expected to be involved in ministry while being trained for ministry, um, yeah. which is different from the model that we find in America, for example, where people uproot their families, they come for four years or three years, right, right, do, do as much as they can, they go back to to serve in full time ministry. As I said, I think there are advantages yeah, yeah. for bo- both models. One um, keeps you very grounded in the reality of the church. Uh, the other gives you more depth, depth in yeah. what you, you can acquire in order to serve the, service the church better mm-hmm. afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I benefit. I, I had the privilege of operating in those, those two, both, being yeah. trained in those two spheres, and, um, uh, and that was very valuable to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you were speaking a little bit about the Gospel of Mark, and that's been certainly an area you spend a lot of focus as well. And, um, you know, I guess just kind of a general question I want to ask you, what are maybe some, obviously it's the shortest gospel, right? But there's a lot of richness and perhaps what are maybe a few things that listeners, people, you know, who aren't immersed in the, the, the research may found unique or find maybe it might not be as the first thing that they would think of that is worth noting or, or noteworthy. Yeah, yeah. I think I'll highlight, I'll highlight three things. Um, first is the um, the majority view nowadays, the Gospel of Mark is the first gospel to be written. Um, and if that is the case, then what we have in the Gospel of Mark is the first time that someone is collecting these stories about Jesus that are circulating orally in the early church and mm-hmm. um, putting them together in a with a narrative frame interested both in history as the Christ event, as a witness to the Christ event, but also interested in theology, meaning how that event actually shapes the the communities to which the gospel is written. So that very fact, the fact that Mark is the first gospel is already uh, curious enough for us to look at and see if this is the first time someone is is looking at these events that happened, making sense of those events for the uh, for the, their communities, this is certainly very interesting because hmm. you have a window into how the early church, the first time the early church is processing the whole span of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection hmm. uh, for their um, their community. Mm-hmm. That's one. But then mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm. you will bump into curiosities about the Gospel of Mark. Uh, first, the, the what people talk about as Mark's Christology being sometimes full of gaps. Mark um, tells us a bunch of things about Jesus. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus' uh, favorite uh, epithet to refer to himself as Son of Man. Mm. But at the same time, there is this whole enigmatic uh, uh, approach to who Jesus is. People are constantly trying to discern who he is. The question of Jesus' identity, hmm. uh, who is this that even the, the sea and the wind obey him? And uh, there are questions from the religious authorities, there are questions from the disciples, hmm. questions from the crowds about who he is. There is this aura of mystery about hmm. Jesus. And even when Jesus heals people, he, sell, he tells people not to say anything to anyone. Or when he um, cast out unclean spirits, he silences the, the unclean spirits so that they would propagate uh, the, the certain things about his identity. So there's, hmm. there's this whole mystery about Jesus, yeah. which I think feeds an important uh, theme of faith and response to what he's doing in the narrative. Hmm. So that, that area of mystery is one, yeah. um, definitely one that is important to highlight. And the other thing is the failure of the disciples, because this is not only mm-hmm. the first time that someone is telling the story of Jesus, it's also the first time that someone is telling the story of, of the disciples of Jesus. And the disciples of Jesus are obviously, the at this time, the pillars of the church, right? They are well recognized as uh, leaders in the church. So you have to ask the question, why 
if it's the first time you're telling the story, why would you tell it in a way that highlights their hardness of hearts, their incomprehension, their lack of uh, perception of Jesus' suffering, their resistance to uh, some of the things that Jesus has to teach? And, the, the, and even the, the, the way that the narrative develops from their initial positive response to Jesus to their denial of hmm. Jesus at the end of the narrative. And most scholars agree today that Mark ends at 16.8 with a, a comment on the, uh, the fear of the women leaving the tomb, not saying anything to anyone. So discipleship in, in, in Mark is also a portrayal of failed disciples, the, the people mm. who don't get, don't understand, fail consistently. Right. And, and so we get this interesting narrative in which we get to know more about Jesus in an indirect sort of way in which Jesus is, is not, is presented as doing things, but there is this, also this enigmatic, mm. uh, uh, flavor to it. Mm-hmm. And you also learn about what it means to be a follower of Jesus by looking at these mm-hmm. failed mm-hmm. disciples. And that's what, what was fascinating mm-hmm. to me when I started looking at the gospel. Like, what what does the, the gospel have to teach us about discipleship in this kind of upside-down sort of way? Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are three things that I think. Yeah, would... no, that's really good. And so I, just last year, it's 2022, 2021, you came out with a you published the book Resisting Jesus as well, mm-hmm. narrative and uh, intertextual analysis of Mark's portrayal. And so you talk a little bit about the resistance within Mark, but how does this compare? How does the disciples' response to Jesus and their their dialogue relationship in the closeness or maybe even the distance from associating or identifying with Jesus compared to the other Gospels? Yeah, um, I think Mark makes... The failure of the disciples a theme. Perhaps John is, is the other gospel that you find um, something along those lines as well. But Mark em- emphasizes that a lot in a w- in an w- interesting way because mm-hmm. if you track with the narrative, there are points that there are certain negative actions that the quote unquote antagonists in the narrative, namely the religious authorities, are mm-hmm. uh, performing that disciples find themselves performing as well. So language, for example, of hardness of hearts is a very strong language to define the resistance of one's heart towards what God is doing, mm-hmm. a language mm-hmm. that draws from the Exodus and Pharaoh's hardened heart and Israel's hardened heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in the first stages of the narrative begins, it's a, it's a qualification of the religious authorities' resistance to Jesus. But later later on, we find that, that the same disposition of the heart is affecting the disciples as well. Hmm. Now, M- Matthew hmm. specifically has something to say about that as well, but Matthew frames it more in, in terms of little faith, like it's a, you you have little faith. There's, a, right, right. there's room for development of faith in Matthew. Mark wants to emphasize the issue of response. How hmm. do you respond when, when God shows up in the person of his son? How do we respond to the to the notion that the one in the boat with the disciples is no less than the very God of Israel, who is performing before them, a, you know, Exodus-like um, miracles and signs? And how do you respond to that? Do you respond in faith or hardness of hearts? Mm. I think Mark wants to put the reader in a position of response. He wants to put the reader in a position of uh, of um, um, looking at what Jesus is doing and and uh, recognizing mm-hmm. what Mark is not saying explicitly, but what he's saying implicitly through the many ways in which he frames or projects Jesus as the very manifestation of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very, it, it, I would say it's unique in the Gospels. All mm-hmm. Gospels will say something about the failure of the disciples. Hmm. But Mark makes it a, 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 a well-defined theme and a theme that functions almost like a mirror for the reader who now can look at what the disciples are doing, the way that they are behaving and responding to Jesus as a way to um, discern their own response uh, to the gospel, which I think is the whole point of chapter four, the 
the parable of the soils there. Mm. Um, Mark gives us a in the disciples a, an illustration of uh, different kinds of resistance that emerge in the human heart in response to the self-disclosure of Yahweh in Jesus. So would you say, I'm just curious, there's maybe a stronger contrast between belief and unbelief, or I guess, or even acceptance and resistance toward the the identity of Christ, or Jesus rather, in in Mark compared to the other Gospels? Or not necessarily? That's one way to put it. Mark, Mark does emphasize faith as, as a response at, at several points uh-huh. in the narrative. And Mark also does a lot with the theme of outsiders and insiders, mm. like who, who's in, who's out, right? In the beginning, sure. you feel like the religious authorities who are supposed to be the insiders are on the outside because of their negative response to Jesus, which makes the disciples the insiders. But then chapter four, mm. the disciples, uh, are, are, we were told to you have been given, has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, which those on the outside, everything is in parables meaning those on the outside don't understand. But after chapter four, the ones who don't understand is actually the disciples. Um, so they they start enacting that same sort of Interesting. Uh, yeah. cognitive and what I call in the book, willful incomprehension. It's still, it's trying to make sense of what God is doing within the categories that are available to you, but failing to to understand them, you, re- you reject the, the, the premise of what's being revealed altogether. Hmm. So I think that's that is um, related to faith and mm-hmm. unbelief, and that's the question that Jesus asks the disciples right after he calms the storm: Do you not have? Do you not yet have faith? Right. Um, which matches the other question that he asks at the end of chapter hmm. uh, eight or eight twenty one, when he says, "Do you not?" yet understand so faith sort of unlocks understanding in, in the gospel of mark and uh, i think that's why mark wants to put it in this kind of black and white sort of idea you either respond to jesus in faith or you harden your heart and you don't hmm. um, but what you're saying is after mark 4 it seems like the disciples are not responding in faith they're actually ex- displaying perhaps greater marks of distance or even resistance from the gospel which what you'd think or at least from our lens would be as you're get as you're gaining knowledge of the living god you're going up into the right or you're 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 coming to greater understanding knowledge and even acceptance of the identity and of the affirmation of of the faith is that is that right or no (laughs) yes interestingly enough the the trajectory of discipleship in mark is not an upward um right it's a downward trajectory. Um, and the critical place is Mark 4, uh, when they start to reveal uh, an incomprehension that is typical of those who resist the gospel. Hmm. Mark 4 is where you have the parable of the soils, right? Right, right, right. It's all about the response. We have ear, the ones who have ears to understand should hear and so forth. Yeah ears to hear, we should hear. Uh, after that moment, we have 435 to 41, when Jesus calms the storm and the disciples um, sort of react in an interesting way with unbelief and asking questions about his identity. And then you, you have a series of events right after that. They they sort of don't, don't understand Jesus when he's multiplying bread in the wilderness, which is kind of a very in your face sort of portrayal like well, who gives bread to people to a multitude in the wilderness right that's yahweh that's god and yet they 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 don't seem to acknowledge that jesus comes walking on the water saying something like i am which is a very kind of uh elusive reference to the name of god mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they mistake him for a ghost uh, then he multiplies bread again. And they still do not understand. And at the end of 21, you have this question, do you not yet understand? Which is a question that I think hmm. uh, encapsulates that that drama of incomprehension. And after that, it's downhill because Jesus hmm. starts talking about his death. And they say, and Peter says, you know, rebukes him for talking about his death. Uh, Jesus says, hmm. I'm going to die. They start to talk about who's great in the kingdom of God, uh, right, who's the greatest. Right. 
uh, among them. Uh, again, Jesus says, right. I'm going to die. And then James, James and John comes and said, we want you to give us, you know, positions of prominence and glory in the kingdom. So from from that moment onwards, it's all about this uh, traits of incomprehension, self-centeredness, mm-hmm. um, cliquishness, all these different elements uh, coming to surface. And I think, Tyler, that that's hmm. that's really something that stands as a as a as a good picture of discipleship. Right. Uh, right. We 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 tend to think of discipleship as this linear progression of self improvement. Hmm. Um, but what Mark tells us is that it gets worse before it gets better. You know, even these people who said yes to Jesus when he said, "Follow me," have to go through certain critical moments in their narrative with, with Jesus, moments that their their understanding of reality is shaken and and they have to be willing to embrace what Jesus is revealing to them, including hmm. the possibility of suffering and persecution and all that, which is built into Jesus's own appeal to discipleship. If you want to follow right, me, right. you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So I think the the challenge that we find in the Gospel of Mark is incredible. It's one that mm. helps us to uh, discern not only in plain terms what discipleship is about, right. but also in a sort of reflected way what what it's not about. Right. What you you learn discipleship by seeing the discipling disciples failing at being disciples. Right. Right. Um, which I think is, if we're honest, is the narrative of pretty much every disciple of Jesus Christ. We have crisis moments at every at every turn. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and so that yeah. Well, going back to some of the three points that you mentioned, and one of them was the the timing of the the, the mark kind of being being the first gospel written and so how does that but you, there's something unique about the early followers how does that kind of play into discipleship as well or help inform our understanding of why this is so significant in comparison to the other gospels yeah so mark is probably written i date mark at around 63 a.d so even okay. prior to the um uh the, the fall of the temple in, in 70 a.d mm-hmm. And Mark is probably writing to a community in Rome um, and a community that is living um, at, a, at a time of turmoil, probably ramping up to what would become later, not, not too many years later, the, the critical time, time where Nero persecuted Christians and, mm-hmm. and the, the martyrdom of Paul and Peter and all that. Mm-hmm. So this is a community that is experiencing the 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 drama of living as a a fringe group, a minority group, mm-hmm. both in relation to the Jews and relation to Gentiles, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They get pressure from all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all sides. Mm-hmm. The Jews because they're you know they're claiming that Jesus is God. Gentiles because, well, they're claiming that Jesus is God. So that upsets both Jews and the followers of the emperor. Right. Um, and what you get then is a very, is a, is a community in its very early stages. If you think about it, 30 years is not too long, especially when you, 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 you count in terms of an, the, the, the role of antiquity in, in a religion in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. only took seriously things that were lasting for centuries. So you you have these people who are suffering some sort of ostracism, some sort of persecution, looking back at events that happened only 30 years ago and perhaps asking the question, is it worth it? Uh, is it worth for us to, to go through all this, for our families to be persecuted, uh, for us to perhaps have our, our, our livelihood compromised for something that happens just 30 years ago with a man that we're saying is the son of God, but really died on a cross. All mm-hmm. we know is died on a cross by the Romans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in, in that context, so you can imagine the the air of fear and, and, and perhaps the temptation to defect from faith, to the temptation to abandon the mm-hmm. community of disciples. 
And then in that in that context, someone comes in and say, hey, Brother Mark wrote something here. And this is how it begins, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And when you start reading the gospel, you see that the good news is really about embracing precisely the, the, the elements that they, they are questioning, uh, embracing the crucified Messiah, embracing uh, his suffering as and his cross at the very as the very stage of his self-disclosure, the, the only place where someone actually says Jesus is the Son of God is when a centurion, a centurion is looking at the cross when Jesus is hanging from it and say, truly, this man is the Son of God. So, if you it, basically Mark is saying, if you can't see God in the midst of persecution and suffering, hmm. then you're missing you're missing Him altogether. Hmm. So that I think is how it would have hit the community of the early Christians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's all very fascinating and would encourage people to, to dig deeper in. But um, I think that's, you know, is a good segue as well into discipleship and how we're looking back at the text and thinking always, how is it applying to our um, environments that we're creating here? And where is the bridge or the, the off, you know, the, the off ramp and the on ramp between our study and how we're practicing. And I, I, I think at least from my experience at Gordon-Conwell and from others, there's a good kind of inter integration of the academic formation, but in the same sense, you leave the classroom knowing that people are praying for you and people are actually, you know, are encouraging you to to grow and to wrestle while also staying rooted and staying kind of really, yeah, deeply um deeply shaped and deeply um, curious and having those kind of curi the, the curiosity as well. And so just want to kind of know from your experience, what is, you know, I guess what is important or what has been useful in thinking about our study of theological training, studying the text, but also that component of, you know, if we're studying it for study's sake without being formed and shaped, then maybe that we're missing something. Yeah. That's a that's a very good question, especially nowadays that people are rethinking theological education or education as a whole mm -hmm. in light of many things that are happening, um, you know, post-COVID, mm -hmm. the advent of online education and all that. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I, I, in my own mind, and perhaps this is coming from my experience as a pastor, um, I can't find a, a framework for a theological education that doesn't land um, very, very strongly on the church. Hmm. When I when I look at the New Testament in search for paradigms for what I do as a professor. I keep coming back to texts like Ephesians 4. Like he gave mm -hmm. teachers, pastors, evangelists, yeah. prophets yeah. for the building up of the saints for the work of ministry. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, that's what theological institutions, at least seminaries, should exist for. Uh, mm. To empower uh, individuals to serve the church well. And if that is the end goal, if we're looking at how we send out people with a, a good theological, pastoral, biblical framework to serve the church, then that should then determine the way that we teach. And that's mm. what we've been thinking a lot about Gordon Cornwall. Mm. How do we teach in a way that will translate directly to the reality of the church. Hmm. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I, we, I have plenty of students here who go on to do PhD studies and teach mm -hmm. in other universities and all that. Um, and we have counselors, we have people who simply acquire a, a theological framework to do their secular job well sure. with, with, with that in mind. But whatever avenues people pursue, I think it is legitimate to think of that as ministry, that 
in some ways we, we are contributing to the advancement of the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. the flourishing of the church in order to continue to advance the kingdom of God. And so if that's what we're doing, then how does that inform our, our teaching? Mm-hmm. And if that's what we're doing, then um, theological education is not simply about intellectual formation. It's it's about a holistic formation. It's about uh, it, spiritual formation is not this optional co-curricular thing that we do on the side, but, but it's something that is the, the very environment in which theological education should happen. So that's the direction that Gordon Conway is moving now. We're experimenting with a model of theological education called Live Together, which tries to really bring issues of presence and relationality and intentionality Mm. and spiritual formation as the environment in which we do theological education. Because ultimately, we are preparing people to deal with, to to pastor, to serve people, right, in the context of of the church and beyond. So uh, more and more we're becoming convicted of of this need to hmm. uh, form people well for the ministry. In some, some sense it's like it's incarnational ministry of being with people as Christ has been with us. And so one of the things I was just thinking of, and obviously, you know, if you Google it or look on the headlines, You'll see the the changes that Gordon Conwell has experienced in the last decade um, with enrollment, and obviously the changes with COVID, and the perhaps some larger views of um, the value of the, not only theological education but also the mechanism of where where it's done, how it's done. Is it you know do we do it as a part time now, or is it are we still committed to the three four years? And I know Gordon Conwell has taken, um, at least with the, with its own facility, um, is looking to change and kind of perhaps pivot, I think is the, the word that's being used, um, mm-hmm. into kind of a new paradigm or a new wineskin. Um, what are, but I'm, I'm sure with that comes a lot of, and I think you named one of them, a lot of changes of thinking, of learning, of discipleship, of ministry. Um, and I think a lot of other seminaries will be wrestling with these questions as well perhaps in yeah. in years to come especially i think in the you know more urban coastal type areas i think which is some stronger marks at least of the hamilton campus um yeah. didn't know if, if there was anything that i think is worth considering if we're thinking you know if we're um just in the, some of the changes but also really you know if i'm a if i'm a student or a prospective student who is looking to get into perhaps consider, you know, additional training as part of this holistic formation process. What it, What is important to consider of how yeah. this is going to be, you know, impacting my future? Yeah. Well, uh, we, Gordon Connell has always tried to, uh, to incorporate new modalities. And, you know, we've been doing digital education for a long time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. partly in recognition that, um, there is a, an increasingly large amount of people looking for opportunities to do theological education from the places where they are. And it's becoming increasingly difficult for people to uproot their families and move to a place like, you know, South Hamilton. Um, and, and I think there are, as I said, there are, mm-hmm. there are certain things that are very valuable in that experience. Um, I I think it's Justo Gonzalez who talks about theological education using two different metaphors. One Mm. is the pipeline and one is the drip line. Mm. Uh, Drip line, you know, it's one of those garden hoses that you put punctures in it and it it kind of irrigates different communities as it were. Mm. Uh, the pipeline is is more concentrated, pressured water, right? So I, I'd say that, you know, you, you have the pipeline, you have people who come here for the full experience of three years and they're deep in their studies. And and, and, uh, and I think that will prepare them for, a cert- for certain kinds of ministry. And you have people in their local communities who want to keep uh, attached to their local communities mm-hmm. while doing theological education. I think that 
the most important thing is that presence, community, relationship, and formation is emphasized in both uh, modalities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In the drip line, um, where people choose to remain rooted in their in their um, context and doing theological education, the relationship, the, the intentionality, the community will happen in their local churches. Mm -hmm. uh, and it should happen in the local churches. If the student cannot be plugged into the community of faith and have their theological training um, being tested and, and, and lived out in, in the sphere of the church, uh, namely if they're just doing it online, just plugging into a few classes here and there, that, that's not going to contribute to their formation. Um, if, they're, if people are doing this at a distance, they should be deeply rooted in their communities, mm -hmm. deeply rooted in ministry and experiencing uh, ways in which the ministry can, um, using your word, uh, become incarnate in, in a certain mm -hmm. uh, experience, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the same thing in the pipeline, you know, we, we have to create an environment with worship and prayer and and and, and um, chapel mm -hmm. and discipleship, all that being integrated into the the, the teaching itself. Mm -hmm. I think what happens with seminaries is that, for better or for worse, worse, we over time adopted this mentality that it is okay for us just to train people and give them the tools they need. Uh, in a very pragmatic way. Um, but I think what more and more people are realizing is that it's it's all about formation. It's all about the this holistic formation of the individual. Mm. Um, and we cannot do that if we separate formation from training, right? Those mm -hmm. two have, have to happen together. And I think the bo both models, which Gordon Connell was trying to do both well, we, we are experimenting with a number of different things. Mm -hmm. um, so for a prospective student, I'll say it depends on what what kind of experience do you want to have. Mm. Um, if you want to be, you know, rooted in your church and you have the discipline, right? A, a, a distance online student has to have a discipline to focus on their studies when they're studying. Um, then perhaps, you know, that sort of experience is good for you. But uh, maybe maybe taking the, the three years to spend in mm. intense formation and being accountable to other students and the conversations that happen outside the classroom as you live together um, is another mm -hmm. um, uh, way to do it. As for a move to... Mm -hmm. Uh, to a more urban environment, uh, I think there are two elements to it. First is the idea that we want to invest in people's lives more than we want to invest in buildings. Uh, the building should furnish the mission, and when it's no longer doing that, uh, you know, the, the first thing that has to go is uh, is 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 those things that are not um, furnishing the mission anymore. Uh, this place has served us very well uh, throughout the years, and we're thankful for it. Um, but it has become bigger yeah. than we actually need. Mm -hmm. So we are we are thinking about what to do with that. Mm -hmm. But also there is this uh, potential of partnerships with churches in the city and a lot of things that will add to our missional impetus as a seminary. Mm -hmm. um, so lots of exciting things mm -hmm. happening mm -hmm. at that front. I think one of the I think questions I think we've been addressing throughout, but perhaps just we'll name it is right. Why is theological training so important today in the United States? And I think a lot of, or at least one thing that I think is, you know, we don't people I think have this sense of this kind of utilitarian, pragmatic. What is the economic output that I will get from this degree? Will it advance my career path or get me? Is it required? 
so to speak, for the the ordination path I'm on or for the denominational affiliation, et cetera, et cetera. And more and more so it's not required, at least from what I've been seeing. But I still argue, and I think, I, I believe you still argue that it's incredibly important in um, being in an environment, being in a space where we're thinking at a deeper level of these the scripture and thinking about tradition and experience and all of these things that have been so inf- impactful for the history of the church and of theological training as well. And so I guess that's, you know, I think my, my encouragement is to, for folks to think that it's not simply, um, you're not simply going to get a degree, but you're, you're committing to this, this formational period that yes. is a large part of how you're going to even think or your worldview of how you think about the world um, in an environment that specializes in trains, as we see in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, that is geared and has that potential, you know, that gifting or that calling to be more positioned to attend even deeper at that deeper level. So I don't know. I, I did, that was just my perspective, but would love to hear kind of of how you'd articulate that of, all right, well, why is, you know, churches aren't requiring theological education anymore as, as much perhaps um it's becoming more of an inconvenience right so what is the what would be kind of a response to that yeah that's uh i think there, there's so many things to say about that um probably i'll start by saying that the reason why churches are um perhaps more hesitant to require that in part is 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 a very pragmatic and utilitarian perception, but also because of the distance that seminaries have created, or the distance that both churches and seminaries have created among themselves. Mm. Uh, I think it's important for the seminary to walk more closely to the church, mm-hmm. so that the church knows that the questions that are being answered in in the an academic seminary environment are the questions of the church, that you're not uh, isolating the individual from the real life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we, most of our professors here have been pastors or missionaries, and mm-hmm. uh, our church people involved in churches, and, and we are very, very interested in the questions that are emerging from the, the ground. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I myself as a dean am always trying to connect with pastors and, and, and hear from them what is important for a seminary to be, uh, you know, attentive to. So I think it, churches and seminaries have to do a better job at walking together and and see how we can collaborate for the, the advancement of the kingdom. The other thing that I would say is that this utilitarian approach of you know you only get what you need in order to get you know, where you want to be, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's really not a missional approach. Uh, if you if you think of ministry simply in terms of career, that makes sense. Spend as little money as possible to, uh, to get where you need to be in your career or the, the status that you need mm-hmm, to be considered mm-hmm. seriously in your career. But that's not what mission is all about. That's not what pastoral ministry is about. Uh, you, you have to think in a missional way. And when you think in a missional way, you, you're thinking not in terms of what, what's the minimum effort that I can make or the minimum you know investment that I can make. You're actually thinking, how can I maximize the impact of, uh, of my ministry? Uh, how can I maximize um, my, you know, the, the, the way I'm being trained so that I, I'll be able to serve God well. We are living in extremely complex times. Mm. It's a very, to, to be a pastor nowadays, to be a minister nowadays, is a very complex business. It requires a lot of nuanced thinking and a lot of intelligent articulation, not only in terms of, of, of you know, apologetics, but also with your, your own congregants who come now with very complex issues and scenarios that you... You need tools to to yeah. work with. Yeah. Um, so that's that's mm-hmm. number one. You if you mm-hmm. are going to serve the Lord, uh, you should be able to do it in the best way possible. 
The second thing I would say is that seminary plugs you into a wider perspective of what God is doing in the world. Um, if you're if you're yes. thinking about your local church, mm. fine. Your local church is you know you you can serve your local church perhaps with a certain minimal training, but what God is doing in local local church is not isolated. It's it's plugged into a wider network of what God is doing in the world. And so you come to a place like Warden Conway, we'll learn from students and faculty what God is doing in various parts of the world. You learn from faculty and from students uh, what you know how your tradition stands in line with what God has been doing throughout history. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you situate yourself in a larger um, context, and and that brings a whole different meaning to being the church. Mm-hmm. I think it's just tremendously problematic when people only look at the local level without realizing that every single church is part of something bigger that God is doing. Mm. And in order to situate yourself in that, you have to be with other people who are doing that as well. Now, two great points, and I think are very helpful, at least for from my perspective and what I've been hearing, but I think are resonating with many of the questions um, and answers that that people are looking for uh, and considering. Um, theological education and formation for today and so just uh, is there any if there's anything else you know you'd like to say or touch on um, before we close and then just kind of where we can find you and find anything else you'd like to like to share maybe the book and such yeah i just want to thank you tyler for uh, the opportunity of of sharing this um uh, it's a rare opportunity where i get to talk about my life, my interest in the Gospel of Mark, and my job as a dean at, at the seminary in the same uh, interview. Uh, so this was this is great. And uh, in my mind, those are all integrated. Mm. And I, I would say just anyone who's interested in, in having more conversations about this, uh, you know, we can all, there's a, a lot of people here at Gordon Connell would be interested in, um, in perhaps help helping people discern whether this is a, a pathway of, uh, for them uh, or not. Mm-hmm. But I just would like to express my gratitude for mm-hmm. being able to um, to participate in this in, in this podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And for folks who are listening, there's campuses, Gordon Conwell and well, Massachusetts, Hamilton and Boston will be relocating toward Boston. Hamilton will be re- relocating toward Boston. Also in North Carolina and Jacksonville, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yes. And some. Also a hub in Cincinnati. We also have a hub in Cincinnati. Ah, okay. In Cincinnati as well. And um, folks, maybe folks or listeners are familiar with Tim Keller, Mark Dever, all have uh, been or you know some some capacity been shaped by Gordon Connell over the years, and I know there's many more as well. So um, thank you so much, um, Dr. DeCampos, and. Um, Blessings to you and uh, the work that you're doing. Thank you.